26, um, starting at verse 6. Should be on the screen. Matthew 26, uh, starting at verse 6, um, down to verse 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very, expensive, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Great to be with you all here at Hoy Lake. Thanks so much for the warm welcome. Uh, great to meet some new people and also um, see some old friends. And I, I don't mean old as in aged friends. Just to clarify, people I've known for a little longer. If you have a Bible, please do turn to Matthew um, chapter 26. That'll be helpful for us as we look at these verses together. Matthew 26, I'm going to be looking at verse 6 uh, down to verse 13 that Tris read to us. But let's just uh, briefly pray again before we think about these words. Father, we rejoice that tonight we can uh, look at your words and we do pray that you would be our teacher And we pray, please, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding. Please open the eyes of our hearts to help us grasp just how much you love us. And please work in us um, that supernatural um, work in our hearts so that we come to love you all the more. Because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. People go to great lengths um, to get or experience something. So um, earlier this year... um, my children and I decided to walk up Rivington Pike, which is a small hill near where we live over towards Bolton. And we decided to walk up in the morning to see the sunrise. And there was a cost to, it was a little little bit ago, it's more in winter than, than now, but there was a cost to that. My alarm was bleeping in my ears and through bleary eyes, I was looking at the time, which said 5.45, which was a Saturday morning, by the way. So cost, early start, gain, seeing the sunrise. There is a blog on the internet with the following title, A Guide to Camping and Queuing for Tickets at Wimbledon. That's right. If you fancy getting some tickets for Wimbledon, you can rock up in a tent Do some camping and try and get a great place in the queue so the following day you get the coveted tickets. Cost, roughing it in a tent. Gain, seeing a tennis star in the flesh. Now if you love your Saturday, lazy Saturday mornings, getting up to see the sunrise perhaps seems a bit strange. If you're not into tennis, then again, camping in a queue at Wimbledon perhaps seems a bit bonkers. But I wonder what it is for you. I wonder what's important to you so that you are willing to give something to get it. Perhaps you're mega obsessed with being ultra healthy. The cost? I don't know. Time spent exercising, money spent 
on particular diets and supplements, etc., etc. Or perhaps you long to be popular. And so the cost of that is you go to great lengths to look a certain way, you buy certain clothes, and you have certain things. So there is a cost, a sacrifice. And that shows how much something is worth to you. I'd like like to ask you a question. What is Jesus worth to you? And this evening, I'm, I'm in no rush to move on from that question. Happy for you just to chew that over in your mind. What is Jesus worth to you? Because, of course, we can apply the same principles. So I could say, seeing the sunrise early in the morning is important to me. But if I'm unwilling to set my alarm clock and get out of bed, then what does that actually reveal? Well, my warm, cozy bed is, is more important to me. So what is Jesus worth to you? You could sing, couldn't you? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. But that is seen in our actions, our choices. As I was thinking about this passage here in Matthew chapter 26, I was, I was chewing it over in my mind. And originally the title I had for this message was Extravagant Worship. But as I thought more and more on this passage, I came to realize that this woman's actions are not extravagant. Instead, Jesus expects this level of commitment from all his disciples. In fact, Jesus says, if you are, unless you are like this woman, you cannot be one of my disciples. And so I could have gone for the title, Expected Worship. But instead, it's a question, what is Jesus worth to you? In Matthew's gospel, just for a little bit of context, we're at the point in Jesus' earthly ministry, which is the beginning of the end. In the final 48 hours approaching the dawn of the darkest day in history. And this woman's beautiful act of love is sandwiched between two acts of hostility. The religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. And one of Jesus' own closest followers agrees to betray Jesus for just 30 silver coins. Cogs are in motion. Pieces are moving like on a chessboard, seeking to get Jesus into checkmate. But here amidst the darkness, we see a beam of light. Testament to a woman who saw the worth of Jesus and acted appropriately towards him. Jesus was worth everything to her. And so that question again, what is Jesus worth to you? First point, verses 6 and 7, costly 
devotion. Jesus is reclining at the table. He's in a house in Bethany, the home of a man called Simon the leper. And this woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, this is not a bottle of water with a few rose petals in like my kids make from the garden. In today's terms, if we look at some of the parallel accounts, we're talking in the region of about 25,000 pounds worth of ointment or perfume. And she goes over to Jesus and pours the perfume over his head, verse 7. And we're not talking, just look at that verse, we're not talking about cautiously allowing a couple of drops to crawl over the edge of the bottle rim. Instead, without reservation, she drenches Jesus in it. Like a firework after it has been lit, there is no getting this back. It's all gone. All over Jesus, maybe dripping down and making puddles on the floor. The room would be filled with a pleasant aroma which would linger on Jesus for the next 48 hours. One aspect of Jesus' ministry that Matthew's gone to great lengths to emphasize in his gospel is the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Messiah, by the way, means anointed one. Matthew has already also recorded that Jesus is the king that David was told would come from his family and reign on an eternal throne. Matthew made that clear in his very first chapter. In his second chapter, he recorded how mysterious visitors came from the east who asked a question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? He continues, Matthew, by recording Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, more recently, wrote about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling an ancient prophecy which said, See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. And just in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 25, we see a glimpse there of the future. Jesus, the king, verse 34, will separate those who have a place in the kingdom from those who don't. He will reward his people with their inheritance. And the blessings are totally disproportionate. In that chapter, we see that someone who has given just a cup of water is rewarded with an eternal inheritance. Imagine the reward for someone who pours 25K worth of perfume on the king's head. Matthew is convinced that Jesus is the eternal king. But at this point, when this happened, when this woman anointed Jesus, he wasn't convinced. This woman, however, has understood something. She's seen something. She's recognized that Jesus is the eternal king and she has come to anoint him. That's what you do to kings. You anoint them. Well, at least if you know that your Old Testament, you do. She has found the hidden treasure. The pearl of great price is right in front of her. So it is a reasonable thing to take everything you have and sell it to get the treasure 
at all costs. And what that looked like for this woman was to get her most precious item and joyfully give it away in exchange for him. What is Jesus worth to you? The Apostle Paul writes, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul in those verses was writing about everything he had strived for, which previously he thought made him something. His whole life revolved around his career, achievements, and reputation. Yet he joyfully abandoned them for the all-surpassing joy of knowing Christ. What is Jesus worth to you? Can you echo Paul's words? It's easy to say. Let's do a bit of self-inspection because there are some really easy indicators which we can look to which give us real clear clues as to the state of our hearts. How do we spend our time? So when we have free time, and some people may think, what's free time? But when we have spare time, free time, how much of that time Do you spend enjoying Jesus? Getting to know him better. How much time do you give actively seeking to see his kingdom advance, serving him? When the the local church gathers, do do you choose to gather as well? And if not, what are you choosing to do instead? See, we can say that Jesus is worth everything to us, but if that doesn't equate to hours in a day, then we're fooling ourselves. What about money? How do we spend our money on yourself? Or do you give sacrificially and generously toward the cause of Christ? Again, we can sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, but if we don't regularly give, then we're deceived. What about decision-making? How do you decide why or how you do something? A family decision, a work decision. What factors come into play? The cause of Christ? The good of the local church? Or is it financial gain and comfort? You may say Jesus is your priority, but if you've not sacked the committee and given him the chair, then we're deluded. What about your thinking? So when you're in an opportunity when you don't really have anything to think about, what is it that you, what dominates your thought life? What are you mulling over, plotting, scheming? You may say Jesus is worth everything, but if you never think about him, then you're kidding yourself. Final one. What does your broadband connection say? If you were to break down all those gigabytes, what story do they tell? If we were to chart our internet usage, 
what, what story does that tell about actually how much Jesus is really worth to me? We can kid everyone else. Well, Google probably knows. But the judge of all the earth definitely knows. We need to pray that God would do the impossible in our hearts and give us eyes for Jesus and his all-surpassing worth. Verses 8 and 9, disgusted disciples. This is our second point. The disciples see this woman and they see what she's done and they are disgusted. They're really annoyed about this. They're indignant. As they look on, instead of seeing the pearl of great price, they see perfume puddles on the floor. And they start to do the maths. They start counting the cost of the expended perfume. Did you notice their phrase? Verse 8, just towards the end. Why this waste? For them, in their calculation, this is a total waste of money. Verse 9, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They look on and they view this woman's act of devotion as making no economic sense at all. They start thinking about the poor street children or the widows in Israel or the local synagogue that needs a few new slates on the roof. And in their minds, this woman and what she has done makes no sense at all. And I think at this point, that's because their relationship with Jesus is still still somewhat shallow and superficial. So Jesus is everything to this woman. He's something to the disciples, but not everything. There are limits to what he can expect and ask. There are certain things that are just too far. So this woman is full of love and devotion, but maybe the disciples are in it for what they can get at this point. I mean, it wasn't too long ago before this account when two of Jesus' disciples, well, it was their mother, went to Jesus and asked if her boys could have the best seats in the kingdom. It's not going to be too long before the going gets really tough and these disciples are just going to be out of there because the, cost, the stakes are now too high. It's getting too extreme. There were levels only so far they would go. They're, they're doing their maths. And so they are criticizing someone who's all in. Have you ever done that? Being critical of someone's devotion to Jesus? Viewed someone as just taking it all a bit too serious. Just doesn't make sense to you. We would all do well to be a bit more generous towards others and a lot more suspicious of ourselves. If we follow Jesus in the way that his word instructs, we will find ourselves often coming up against criticism. Perhaps it's our school friends, college friends, who don't understand why we don't watch certain things or our parents tell us not to watch certain things or or why we don't go to certain places or or other people might question why we use the resources that we have in, in a certain way. Criticism for a follower of Jesus should be expected. And that doesn't mean we're getting something wrong. In fact, if we are never criticized, that should be a strange thing. If people are never offended by the choices we make, then then perhaps then we should worry. 
We should be frequently being accused of wasting our lives, wasting our lives in the eyes of the world. We, we mustn't have limits. We can't if we're Jesus' followers. Jesus said, the man who loves his life will lose it. Final point, verses 10 to 13. Jesus' delight. Jesus' delight. So, so far we've seen costly devotion, disgusted disciples, Jesus' delight. Jesus treats this woman with dignity and respect and silences his disciples. That was revolutionary, I expect, in, in that Jewish culture. And he calls this woman's actions, did you see it? A beautiful thing, verse 10. Let's read from verse 11. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus evaluates this woman's actions completely differently to how the disciples evaluate her actions. The action, in, in many ways, well, it is prophetic, preparing him for his death. The disciples see waste. Jesus observes with wonder. And I think that's because this woman is very Jesus-esque, if you want to use that phrase. This woman poured out her perfume in wholehearted love and devotion. Her wealth became puddles at Jesus' feet. But shortly... Jesus will give his life. It will be puddles of blood around his feet. Although Jesus was rich, for this woman's sake, for your sake, for my sake, he's about to become poor. The sins of the world will be poured on him and then God's wrath because of those sins. This woman's demonstration of love, it was costly but compared to what Christ had done for her, would do for her, it was nothing. And yet, the grace of Jesus, this act, we are told in verse 13, of this woman, her actions, although small in comparison to Jesus, would be an enduring monument which is still spoken about today. Jesus is glad for this woman to be blessed. Remarkable. Now, Jesus' death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has a profound effect on all who will believe the gospel. These disciples at this moment are critical of this woman, but they too would come to see Jesus as the pearl of great price, the hidden treasure. And after receiving life from Jesus, they will gladly count the cost and give everything for him. I'm sure the disciples looked back on this account and cringed at their disgust, their indignation towards this woman. But Jesus would also be delighted with them and how they wasted their life in service of him. Recently, I've been uh, looking at 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, there was something I came across which uh, really challenged my thinking. Have you had a moment like that? Something that you've just not just isn't in your thinking and the Lord has to make room for it by uh, the regeneration of your mind, the restoring of your mind. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth about the magnificent Macedonians. 
And he's saying that the Macedonians, although they were in great poverty, they excelled in giving. It's a really great passage. How they poured out the perfume, if you like, was was to give sacrificially and generously to the church in Jerusalem. And this is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth as he was referencing the people, the magnificent Macedonians. Paul wrote this. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, this came as a bit of a surprise to me. I'm not used to this language of comparing ourselves to other believers. But what Paul was saying there, he was motivating the church in Corinth to give generously and sacrificially by comparing them, getting them to compare themselves to the Macedonians. And so today, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to see that he is the pearl of great price, if you're asking the question, what is Jesus worth to me? Then we can compare ourselves to this woman in this account. I think from Corinthians we see that that's a biblical thing to do. We, we can compare ourselves to the disciples post-Pentecost. And ultimately, of course, we can compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. I'd like to read an extract from a book, and this is probably one you've, you've heard before. It's a, it's a very famous um, book that was written quite a few years ago, but it fits really well. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of the Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And today, people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over and against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. In April 2000, Ruby and Laura were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in the Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Too 
lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not tragedy. That is glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth to me? Make a comparison. Look at your life. Consider are you wasting your life? Now please do not mishear what I'm saying. We do not gain eternal life by pouring out everything for the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has given his blood. By his spirit, he gives us new life and then an appropriate response when we see the worth of Jesus is to pour out our lives in service of him for the extension of his kingdom and his glory alone. What is Jesus worth to you? Let's bow our heads and let's pray before we sing our final song. Father, there is nothing within me in and of myself that desires to give up things for you. And so I, we, are dependent on your Holy Spirit to help us value Jesus rightly and properly. There is nothing wrong with Jesus' worth but there is much wrong with our sight. So please, Father, do supernatural things in our hearts and help us to respond. Please give us faith and repentance. Help us to turn from our own way and even into this week, seek to pour out our lives in service of King Jesus because of everything he has done for us. Please do this miracle, we ask, because we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.